Futures trading involves risk and is not suitable for all investors. Content provided in this segment is meant for educational purposes and is not a solicitation to buy or sell commodities. Opinions and statements of guests not affiliated with Everag are their own and do not reflect the views of Everag. The accuracy of their statements cannot be guaranteed by Everag. Hello and welcome to From the Furrow, brought to you by Everag Insights. Each week we talk with subject matter experts on news and topics affecting the grain markets. I'm your host, Britt O'Connell. Let's get started with a review of the markets. Today is Tuesday, June 20th. July corn is trading up one and three quarter cents at 642 even, with July soybeans up a penny, trading 1467 and a quarter. I am particularly excited about this week's guest. This week, we have Eric Snodgrass, Principal Atmospheric Scientist with Nutrient Ag Solutions. Thanks for joining us today, Eric. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Everyone is talking about weather. Everyone is watching every hour run of weather. And so it's very timely that you're on today. Let's dive right into it. All right. So it's dry across a good portion of the Corn Belt right now. Markets and farmers, buyers alike, everyone is eyeing these forecasts. Everyone is eyeing precipitation that actually hit the ground. How are growing conditions shaping up in some of these really key regions? We're getting deeper into June now, July 4th, which is always sort of this proverbial date on the calendar that we're looking at as as growers in particular. What are we looking at as far as conditions in some of these key areas? You know, throughout the Great Lakes Basin, throughout the Mississippi Basin, throughout the Ohio Basin, I mean, that's a huge part of, of our main ag belt. We've just got drought that's developed. And it's uh, it's gotten to the point that because of how cold it is in the southeast, that it's been quite difficult to get the, the flow to turn around to return some uh, to return some moisture. And so it's one of those things where, unlike the last three years, the farther west you go, the better the rains have been. So it didn't rain in Illinois, didn't rain in Wisconsin, but it got a little bit of rain in Des Moines last weekend. We got better rains in Kansas. I mean, Kansas has come roaring out of its drought scenario. It's been wetter in western Nebraska, which we typically think of as, as just a very drought prone, kind of almost like high plains desert type area than it has throughout you know, much of the Midwest. And so we're starting to look for any sort of sign of change, but we've now made it you know, almost to the solstice here, and we have not seen significant rains come through. And it just has a lot of us thinking about the lessons we learned with previous droughts. You know, I just think back to what I used to teach students at the University of Illinois. I always told them, I said, listen, there's something you got to remember about drought. And that is, there was a saying that came about in the Dust Bowl, and that was all signs fail in times of drought. And what that meant was every time we thought there was a break, every time we thought there was moisture coming, it just tended to fail. And we're, we're waiting to see if the next chance is going to fail as well. The bad news about it is, this is probably the most important thing, when this drought does break, because long duration drought in the Midwest just isn't really a thing. It's just not historically a thing. But when it does break, it'll probably break in a big way, which means we'll probably go over starting off with severe weather and hail. And then once it starts, it probably won't stop. But we're all sitting here saying, well, when's that going to happen? Is it the 4th of July? Is 4th of July going to have natural fireworks along with uh, the, the man-made ones? Or is it going to be something later on in the year, which will actually be more devastating to the crop than, than helpful? So I want to go back to a comment that you made earlier about the summer solstice, because I've heard both yourself and other meteorologists kind of peg this mid-June as a benchmark, originally saying we could potentially see 
a shift in the weather pattern. Is there something particular around summer solstice or around this time frame that had everyone thinking, okay, we could see kind of a, a turning of the tides then or now? Yeah, it's it's just kind of a historic landmark date we always keep floating around in our heads. And, and the reason for that is, you know, there is certainly a, a summer flow regime in the jet stream, right? And so we think about the solstice as being that very long day with a lot of sunlight, a lot of heating, and therefore it's going to be kind of advertising for us what the atmosphere is capable of doing. So if we get to the solstice and there's a lot of momentum, if we get to the solstice and we've not seen much blocking in the jet stream, if we get to the solstice and we've not yet developed drought, we start to say, well, will we likely be able to carry that first full month of, of, of summer without major stresses? Well, this is a year where those four things I just listed off haven't happened. We've been blocked up. We've lost momentum. We've seen drought develop. And here we are at the solstice. And we say, okay, if this is what the jet's done up to this point. Is it capable of breaking away and doing something else? So yeah, for the last six weeks, I've said my my by time period, that's going to be most important to forecast will be, you know, June 20 through the 25th. That's this week. And, and we're watching it carefully. And so that's what we typically use as that benchmark date. We just want to see what did we get up until this point to finish spring, to see the summer pattern setting up. And this has been one where the biggest culprit has been, we have these two big flanking subtropical highs, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast. Well, the one on the East Coast is just gone. It's gone to Europe. It's gone to Africa. And we call that the Bermuda High. And that's the culprit that we're watching for this particular drought episode. And here it is on the solstice and, and still not come back. So let's let's stay on the, on the concept of that Bermuda High. Mm -hmm. You spoke about it every morning and evening. You put together a YouTube video where you kind of break down um, what's been going on weather-wise and also a bit of a forecast, if you will. And you referred to that, you've been referring to that Bermuda high for a while. Help me understand, okay, you say it's, you know, it, it's supposed to be over Bermuda, mm -hmm. hence the name, right? Yeah. Um, kind of help me understand, like, it's currently sitting in a place out in the middle of the Atlantic where it's not having a positive impact on our moisture. How does that move back into Bermuda? How do we get that to push moisture up through the Gulf? Yeah. So the Bermuda high left as soon as the Atlantic began to boil. Okay. So if you've not seen the ocean temperatures across the Atlantic right now, they are warmer, right? Where we have like, for example, tropical storm Brett just formed. I mean, that's an early tropical storm. Well, the ocean temperatures in, in the Atlantic are already as warm as they typically are in September. And that's the peak of, of, of the warmth. They're warm all the way up the West coast of Africa, clear to Europe. And so what happens is that Bermuda high, which is kind of like a, a dome of high pressure and warmth, it's going to sit over those warm waters and it's moved there. And it's been cold over the southeast, and the Bermuda High won't go there because it, it's cold. There's lower heights in the atmosphere. There's When the heights lower, the atmosphere spins counterclockwise. When the heights rise, we have a big ridge of high pressure. They spin clockwise. So this is what you need. If the Bermuda High was near Bermuda, and it was spinning like all high-pressure cells do in the northern hemisphere, which is clockwise, it actually pulls moisture from the western Atlantic over the Caribbean islands into the Gulf of Mexico, and it makes the turn right up the midsection of the United States. And that is the fuel for all the thunderstorms we could typically get. That's gone. It's not there. And as a result, we put a high-pressure cell over Europe at times, like the UK. I, mean, I don't know if you remember this, but it was a couple, what, maybe 10 days ago. They did a big military parade, and all of those guys kept fainting in the band. Okay, that was where the heat was. So there's been a big high there. There's been a big high over Canada promoting all of the, the wildfire activity. And there's been a big high that's been near the Aleutian Islands. 
So our best years in the Midwest take all of those high pressure cells and just move them west, bring the Bermuda high back, take the ridge that's over Canada, put it in British Columbia, take the ridge that's over the Aleutian Islands and shove it over parts of Russia. You do that and all of a sudden we're like, oh, shut off the rain. We need sunshine. We need it to be drier. You know, that's just it. It, It's just a matter of monitoring that pattern. And what we call it, we call it the triple ridge. That's it. That's the name of it. When you have a ridge in the North Atlantic, a ridge in Canada, and a ridge in uh, somewhere in the Gulf of Alaska or in the Aleutian Islands, the triple ridge pattern that is what smokes us out and gives us the worst years. The difference is this year, the triple ridge showed up in May. 2012, 88, 83, 87, you can go through all the terrible years. Those years, the triple ridge pattern showed up at the end of June through July and August. So we got an early taste of a summer pattern, and it's been a hard time kicking it out. So is there any seasonality to how that Bermuda high moves? Is there a chance that if the heat breaks in some of those regions where it's currently sitting over, that that can make its way back? Or is it something where now we've got to wait until fall or winter to to see that Bermuda high move back? Well, it may take some time, but there are already a few things kind of stirring to kind of get it to move. For example, the tropical systems that are right now in the Atlantic, like Brett and the one that's following it. Uh, the MJO is trying to go back over to the Indian Ocean and maybe end up over Australia. I'd love it if that happened. We've now seen El Nino begin to just start to flex its muscles and push the subtropical jet into a ridge over Texas. I mean, up until this point, Texas has been very cold and very wet compared to what they can get this time of year. And it's finally hot in Texas. We would love that because the hotter it gets in Texas, the more the storms roll over the top of it to bring drought relief to places that need it. But um, all of those things need to kind of happen in concert in order for this to really reshape itself and get us back into a more favorable condition. And and right now, I feel as though each of those weather patterns is kind of sitting on the sidelines saying, no, you go, no, you go, no, you go. And, And none of them are going, right? They're all just waiting on each other. When they all defi- decide to start to, to kind of reinvigorate the pattern, it will likely be a pretty big cascading of events that could likely push us extremely wet at some point. But we need that to happen sooner than later. And by the way, there is some precedent for this, okay? Um, I talked last week about 1992. Now, the situation in 1992 was much different than it is this year, but we had a very, very dry May and June for the Corn Belt in 1992. And then July had a surplus of seven inches of rain. That's over normal uh, across Iowa, Missouri, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Ohio. I mean, that whole area absolutely soaked. So my point is to tell you that 1992 is not an analog year, but the atmosphere is capable of doing that, flipping the switch and all of a sudden changing this whole pattern on a heartbeat. So we're waiting for that. So you mentioned El Nino and... Mm -hmm. Everybody is kind of looking around saying, hey, I thought El Nino was supposed to be a weather pattern where it was conducive for good crops across the Midwest. And here we are sitting in the midst of a drought. Mm -hmm. Are we still in an El Nino? How is that shaping up and how could that impact weather in the next six months? So, yeah, we're definitely in an El Nino. In fact, there's over a 95% probability, according to the CPC, that will keep El Nino all the way through next winter, maybe even the next spring. Uh, we, we did show, you know, we've looked historically. We know that transition years tend to start off a bit drier in May and June when there's an El Nino in the Midwest. But uh, that's okay. Usually a little bit drier than normal is not a problem. This year was much drier than normal. So what has the El Nino been up to? It's there. Ocean temperatures have already at times hit a degree C above average. I mean, that's a fast transition. Three months ago, we were one degree C below normal, and here we are making that big move up. Um, But 
El Nino has to extend what we call the subtropical jet that goes from Hawaii to California to Michigan. And what it's done is it's gone from Hawaii to California to Colorado. It's not pushed through the Midwestern United States to really exert its influence. So instead, the flow has died over the Midwest in the jet stream level, and we just don't have anything there to kick it out. So yeah, we're waiting to see El Nino kind of engage with this pattern. But we knew that historically, when this happens, it's a bit drier early in the season, and then um, it gets better as the season goes on. The problem is, was that this year, El Nino doing its normal transition didn't have the Bermuda high to help. So without the Bermuda high there to help things out, we, we lost it. El Nino doesn't look as though it's contributing as much as it is. But I'll be honest with you, all of the other folks out there that may say, oh, no, this is, you know, you missed it because El Nino's transition years are always dry. They're always terrible. No, no, no. That's not what history tells us. The history tells us that you have to watch multiple components to the flow of the atmosphere to understand how this goes. And we lost the big one, which is the Bermuda High. Had it been in place, we would have been saying, oh, El Nino is the best thing ever. But we misattribute things, right? We misassign the, the, the responsibility of the things going on in the atmosphere to the things that all of us know. You can talk to anybody in the world and you say El Nino or La Nina, they either think of the weather pattern or Chris Farley, right? We know what that means, right? We've all thought about that. A Bermuda high, most folks are like, what the heck is a Bermuda high? And they probably think there's a bunch of people smoking pot somewhere in Bermuda. But no, no, no. This has to do with the flow of the atmosphere. And it all has to work in concert to work uh, well for us. So what we've lost is one critical piece that makes El Nino less effective at what its job typically is. Eric, you know, obviously we've talked a lot about the Midwest and the Corn Belt. And that's on the front of everyone's mind. And, and I want to come back to talking about that a little bit. But while we're talking about El Nino and La Nina, I want to talk a little bit about South America. So South America, you know, is a key player in this whole global grain trade. And so we're always paying attention to what is going on down there and how, how some of these global kind of weather patterns, if you will, can impact them. What's going on in South America right now, or maybe even more broadly, how does a El Nino impact Brazil and Argentina in an you know, kind of normal environment. Yeah. So maybe what we should do is just think back to what the last growing season in South America did. Because remember, for all of it, there was a La Nina, the opposite of El Nino. And La Ninas historically correlate to drier conditions in Argentina. We saw that a lot, right? Argentina really, really struggled to get, you know, anything uh, going. We then saw that uh, throughout the growing season that there were timely rains for most of Brazil, and they hit huge numbers on, on their crop. Okay, when the thing started to transition, it got really wet uh, in southern Brazil late, and there was risk of colder weather in southern Brazil, but it still didn't impact the safrinha crop. So Brazil got away with one this year. Big yields, big production, big acres. I mean, what did they do? They increased acreage by, was it nearly 7 million acres this past year? I think that was a, a number that I, I remember. So they're sitting here on a lot of grain, and I, I now this is your world, but I'm wondering how much they're loving the weather problems in North America just to make these <laughs> these trades on because we certainly love it when they have problems, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, there's this back and forth here between us and them. Now, if El Nino continues as forecast and we go into September and October when they're trying to plant their next crop, historically, El Ninos tend to delay the Brazilian monsoon. So it typically starts 
you know, late September through mid-October, if they push that back to the monsoon not starting until uh, November, they're going to wait to plant beans. Now, this usually doesn't impact soybeans because they, they're the first crop in. They just wait for the rain. They get two inches in that soil. Boom, they go plant that crop and it takes off. Um, could there be risk of El Nino pulling back some of the rainfall in Brazil next year? There certainly could be. But what it really does is it tends to just compress their crop calendar. So they like to start harvesting those soybeans sometime in January, mostly in February. But if we don't let them, the weather doesn't let them, excuse me, plant uh, until a little bit later, maybe that harvest for beans gets pushed back, which means corn goes in later, which makes corn more vulnerable to not having the rains all the way to May, which it needs to do, uh, you know, to get through to, to grain fill. So uh, Brazil, when we get to about September, all of the discussion will be, will the monsoon start on time? And El Nino years just tend to say, probably not. And that would that would be key, I think, for the next growing season. So we could see pressure in both hemispheres out of the shift we've seen in this uh, El Nino event. Certainly something that we're going to be monitoring and watching, like you mentioned, especially as we get deeper into the fall here in the U.S. Speaking of fall, let's pivot back to U.S. weather. I want to take a step a little further out on the horizon. We know we've got some issues here right now, and obviously we're all praying that we do receive some rains. but Let's talk about harvest. You'd mentioned that if we do see this drought break, it could bring some pretty severe weather, some extreme moisture for a while. Do you have any forecasts as to how harvest could shape up or kind of further out on the horizon? Yeah, I did. I looked last night at uh, some of the long range data. Just pu I pulled out every year where we transitioned into El Nino. And I said, what did those years look like in summer and in fall? And what it, what it typically showed was dry start, getting wetter and then wet. Now, that would be a far cry from what we saw last fall, right? I mean, last fall, we loved the beginning of that dry episode because everybody harvested quickly and we thought we'd get a lot of field work done. And then all of a sudden, here it is, October and early November, we're like, wait a minute, the Mississippi's about to dry up. That doesn't happen very often. And it just depleted all the soil moisture, which actually made us vulnerable this year to having drought is the fact that fall was so dry. As it stands, uh, there's two things I'm worried about for fall. One, El Nino years and the late season storm activity we tend to get from it in the Midwest. And then two, what typically happens is if we keep all of that heat in the Atlantic, we could be watching a pretty active hurricane season late into fall. And we all know that sometimes you get into September and October and you get a system that finds itself in the Gulf of Mexico and it just meanders up the Gulf uh, into the Mississippi Basin. And it can really dump a tremendous amount of rain when it does that. So I still think that that risk is on the table right now because I don't think that this El Nino is going to completely shut down the hurricane season like El Ninos are capable of doing. But of course, looking out that far is pretty speculative. And I, I feel as though I, I'm a bit more short-sighted short right now just saying, when is the next rain going to come through the Midwest? And I'll tell you this too, while we keep talking about how dry it is here, from Colorado to the Southern Plains to the lower Mississippi Basin to Georgia, one at all to just shut off. We've had 10 inches of rain across parts of those areas. There's flooding all throughout the South, including several storms that produce massive hail, 2,500 reports of severe weather in the last eight days. And so they're all saying, well, give me a change too, because <laughs> we're all kind of either in the haves or have nots, the dry North, extremely wet to the South. And they do not want an active hurricane season this fall because of how wet things have been up to this point. And that can have uh, as much of a negative impact on the crops, particularly in the South, where 
they've got a more humid environment anyway mm-hmm. um, that, we, you know, they don't necessarily want all that moisture with compared with that heat that can create some issues for those folks as well. So certainly something to continue to monitor and watch as well. So as we look ahead, everyone's hoping and praying that we start to see some rains. It's still the best scenario when we can grow a really nice crop and things start, start to look good. If listeners are looking to hear more about your research, your insights, I mentioned you do a couple of YouTube videos. How is the best way for them to do that, Eric? Yeah, you know, we have uh, we have several avenues by which we try to get the information out. And the easiest thing to do is to go to YouTube and just go to uh, just go to YouTube and search uh, Nutrient Ag Solutions Ag Forecast. And I produce a weather video every morning, goes out around 6.30 a.m. Central Time. And then twice a week, I do a pretty deep dive on Monday nights and Thursday nights where we just we try to cover every piece of what we can. That, they're long form videos. I mean, shoot. I think last night's was 35 minutes, but we had a lot to talk about. And what I tell people is if you don't have that much time, there is a little slider bar along the bottom. You grab that and move it to the part you want to see. But uh, that's just a way to stay informed with all of it. Now, to get the more rapid updates, um, I have built a new mobile-friendly application that uh, I'm excited just to get going and and get it out there and released. And I can send you along that link so that folks can have access to that. It's got local forecast information, all of the models distilled down. And we're building a new insights page on that so I can give quick-hitting things. You know, hey, we just saw this, this, this. Just keep people informed. Uh, And then we've also got – got a website. It's just agweather.com, ag wx.com and uh, that's free it's from nutrient and it just shows you all of the weather maps i look at all the time so you'll be able to kind of satisfy that inner weather nerd and just go out and look at all the data and see what's out there yourself and uh, hopefully it just starts uh, to make you you know a bit more of an informed consumer of weather information when you kind of dive into it and see it uh, so yeah there's lots of different avenues but hey youtube's a great place to start because you can access it from any platform just go there search nutrient ag solutions ag forecast and you'll find us Absolutely. That's one of the things I enjoy most about your videos is you're a, a natural teacher. And so I've learned a lot. <laughs> Thank you. I will, I will never say that I'm a weather expert by any means, but I certainly learned a lot about meteorology and what you folks are looking at. And that's, that's been fun. So I appreciate uh, you putting those videos together and really appreciate your time today. Thank you again. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. This was a lot of fun. And Hey, let's hope that uh, next time we do this, we've talked about something entirely different. No D words, no drought. I'd like, <laughs> I'd like to be talking more about rain. <laughs> no doubt. Absolutely. Well, thanks again, Eric. If you've enjoyed listening to From the Furrow podcast, feel free to hit the subscribe button, like us, or share us with a friend or two. Thank you to Corey Romero, our producer, and Paige Driscoll for mixing and mastering today's production. Mm-hmm.